I've got bad news for you. The cuteness is over. (laughs) That was awesome, wasn't it? I mean, that was awesome. Thank you so much, Keisha, David, everybody who worked hard, many parents. uh, Those slides were the work of our third through fifth graders and obviously others to get those on the slides. So um, just grateful for that good word. And, and, and I have to echo with Scott, uh, the worship today has been sublime. It just has, and especially as I come with the message, I think of how, once again, as it's almost always the case, the songs are just perfectly chosen. That last, those last little choruses we were singing, you were sovereign over us. We get to choose that in trials and suffering or we fall to bitterness, which we're going to be talking about today. I, I don't mind working our way through 42 chapters of Job in 10 weeks. I just wish we had two and a half hours for the message every Sunday. That's all. It would be very helpful if that were the case. Uh, we are in the book of Job, but it's not just the book of Job. It's really a, it's a study in, in, in suffering if you're new uh, this morning. Some of our home group leaders are using a book by, the name, by a man by the name of Christopher Ash. I've mentioned this several times. I'm going to throw it up on the screen in just a few moments, and you'll be able to. Um, I hope some of you will get it and download it. Uh, Ash argues against rushing through Job. Why? Well, we don't get to rush through suffering, do we? I mean, when suffering comes, the first response is often, get it off, get it off, get it off. Get it out of my life. But when suffering settles in, it's kind of like, oh boy, now what? Uh, Listen to what Ash says. There is no instant answer. Take a spoonful of Job, just add boiling water, and you'll know the answer. Job cannot be distilled. It's a narrative with a very slow pace after the frenetic beginning and long delays. Why? Because there is no instant answer working through grief. No quick fix to pain. No message of Job in a nutshell. God has given us a 42-chapter journey with no satisfactory bypass. Now, having read that admonition to sit with Job, I'm going to tell you that we're not going to be in Job very much today. Uh, I'm going to do just about the opposite. Um, Ash's point, though, is well taken. Our 10-week study in Job is meant to serve as a template for you to go back and spend time in it. And, and you could, listen, you really would be blessed if you would get this book. It reads, it's one of those rare uh, works in which you can stay on the surface or you can go deep. Either one. It, it reads almost like a novel. You just can't put it down kind of a thing. Um, so it would be worth going back and spending time in this book. So w- w- this is a template not only for studying Job but also for processing and engaging suffering when we have, we're called to endure trials which come in almost every shape, size, and flavor imaginable. 
every back this morning in this room is bearing a burden. And if you say, well, not me, not now, you know that that's temporary. Every one of us struggles, and, and, and the type of struggle we're going through is, 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 is just like everybody else and is completely unique to us all at the same time. It's just the way that works. I've, I've talked with several people lately. Grief seems to me, what I learned when I went through intense grief, <clears throat> when I went through two periods of intense grief within about a three or four year period, <clears throat> different types of grief altogether. They all have the same five, six, seven, eight kinds of um, uh, facets to it, grief does, but it's all ordered differently so that suffering is very similar to what everybody else has and it's, and it's unique as well. Your experience is unlike anybody else's because of the ways that it, it, it unfolds for you. <clears throat> so if you want a far more thorough understanding of Job than, than 10 weeks affords, I cannot recommend Ash's book more highly. Job, The Wisdom of the Cross. So far, Job has traded barbs with his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. I mean, they've accused, judged, condemned Job before God. Job has responded with defensiveness, and he moves toward a state of bitterness. That's always the challenge with suffering, whether you know it or not. It's not to become bitter. When we suffer, we recognize, as Job did, that God is sovereign, as we've been talking about all day. And he could end my suffering if he chose to do so. And when he chooses not to end my suffering, then perhaps that means that he's got a problem with me. And instead of Going for, toward <clears throat> confession and repentance, we often, well, if he's got a problem with me, I've got a problem with him. Now, you're not saying those words directly. You're, you're not about to say those words directly. But that ends up being a, a spirit that becomes all too prevalent in our hearts. And it's easy to become bitter, but bitterness is a particularly insidious poison. Because it damages not only me, but others around me. This morning, we're going to look at two passages in Job, in chapters 9 and 30. And then we'll spend most of our time in the New Testament, considering both the the danger of bitterness and the prescribed cure in Scripture. There's a lot here to to absorb. A lot of different things will be coming at you today. So just take some general notes, maybe, if you want to go back and think about these things more fully. If you've written down the name of the book and you've determined that you're going to get it already, I could just stop and go sit down. But since I'm paid to not do that, I will continue for a little bit without the cuteness. So, Job 9, 13 to 24, and Job 30, verses 16 to 23. The crushing that Job speaks of reminds us that it pleased the Father to crush the Son in order that we might have life, that we might live. The Father crushed 
the Son that we might live. The difference is between Jesus and Job is this. Jesus fully trusted his Father. Job succumbed to bitterness. As a warning to us, we will read God's word while we stand together. So would you please stand? I will be reading from the English Standard Version. God, and Job is is speaking indirectly and directly to God. God will not turn back his anger. Beneath him bowed the helpers of Rahab. Rahab in the book of Job is kind of like this mythical beast, but... It really represents Satan. It's not a mythical beast. It just is a representation of evil. And Job is saying, I'm treated as evil as these helpers of Rahab. How then can I answer him, choosing my words with him? Though I am in the right, I cannot answer him. I must appeal for mercy to my accuser. If I summoned him and he answered me, I would not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he crushes me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. Those are bitter words. But he will not let me get my breath but fills me with bitterness. Even my bitterness is the Lord's fault. If it is a contest of strength, behold, he is mighty. If it is a a matter of justice, who can summon him? Though I am in the right, my own mouth would condemn me. Though I am blameless, he would prove me perverse. I am blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. It's all one. Therefore, I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. When disaster brings sudden death, he mocks at the calamity of the innocent. The earth is given into the hand of the wicked. He covers the face of its judges. If it is not he, who then is it? If God's not the cause of all of this, who is? Then chapter 30, beginning in verse 16. And now my soul is poured out within me. Days of affliction have taken hold of me. The night racks my bones, and the pain that gnaws me takes no rest. Some of you know that feeling. With great force, my garment is disfigured. It binds me about like the collar of my tunic. God has cast me into the mire, and I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. With the might of your hand, you persecute me. You lift me up on the wind. You make me ride on it, and you toss me about in the roar of the storm. For I know that you will bring me to death into the house appointed for all living. Let's pray. Father, it is a wonder that you allow these words even to be in the scriptures, in the word that you have revealed uh, to our hearts and minds and the things that you say that you have revealed about yourself. We know that Job's words were from 
a heart that was not trusting and indeed a bitter heart. He repented and in the end, and Lord, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have to be convicted by the Holy Spirit and to turn our hearts and lives over to you. Lord, give us today a spirit of trust in our pain and an acknowledgement of your sovereignty when all seems to be wrong. And may we learn from Job the foolishness of saying such things. But may our hearts also be like Job who desperately wanted to commune with you. In the end, Lord, make us like Jesus who said, into your hands I commit my spirit when none of it makes sense. Bless our time that remains this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. It's far easier to not believe in God when you encounter suffering than to have a halfway kind of belief in a God who gives you good things. I mean, what are you going to do with a God who can eliminate your pain, your suffering, but he chooses not to do so? Job fully trusted God with his law paradigm. Serve God and he will bless you. Disobey God and he will judge you. So he was confounded by his suffering. And what did, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> he couldn't understand and he demanded an explanation. Even so, he knew far more about God than did his judgmental companions. Nevertheless, Job felt utterly alone. We profit from Job's days of terror on this side of God's address to him and particularly on this side of the cross. Martin Luther said the greatest words in Scripture are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why would you think Luther would would be so taken by those words? Because he recognized that Jesus was taking, was absorbing God's wrath for sin in our place. And now... God is anything but removed from my suffering. Because of the suffering of Christ, Jesus experiencing the full abandonment of God. I might always have not only God's full attention, but I experience God's pleasure towards me. Uh, even as I bear suffering at high levels. Because I am in Christ, God is for me. He is with me. So who can be against me? Even as I suffer extreme sickness, financial stress, relational agony, or persecution for my faith. As believers, the Holy Spirit reminds us that as we search God's word, we eagerly search God's word for guidance and comfort through a tough time. Um, and, and, and these truths that, that Job learned in the end and that we learn from God's word or a comfort to us. But when a difficult month becomes a difficult year, and friends 
who were so near at the beginning are not able to keep pace with your decline. It's easy for bitterness to creep into our hearts and our minds. It doesn't suddenly appear as a a fully developed plant or flower. But a seed germinates and a root of bitterness forms in your heart almost without you knowing it. All of the questions and none of the answers. Alone. You find yourself just alone. I want us to look at a New Testament passage this morning that most people think of as directed toward the discipline of wayward believers. But it's far more general than that. And and, and this... This um, passage treats uh, suffering as God's discipline for his children. Discipline is not only corrective in nature. It's instructional, educational. It's preventative, in fact. We tend to think of discipline only corrective, but not so here. I'm speaking about Hebrews 12. So I was loving hearing all the pages turning while ago. Turn to Hebrews 12. It's always good to have your Bible open in front of you. (coughs) Hebrews 12, and I'm going to begin in verse 3. You remember what chapter 11 was about of Hebrews? The heroes of the faith, many of whom suffered terribly, some of whom were sawn in half even, and just suffered horrible persecution and deprivation, other things. Then God talks about running the race with patience in the first two verses of Hebrews 12, and he says in verse 3, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. So right off the bat, as, as the author of Hebrews talks about discipline, he tells us to look to Jesus. He points us to Jesus. The whole book has been pointing us to Jesus, and now as suffering is, arre- is addressed, Jesus is held up as our role model. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. How would you like it if you're suffering and somebody walks in and says, hey, I don't see any blood lying on the floor. Anybody threatened to crucify you lately? What are you whining about? Quit your whining. That's essentially what the writer is saying. He's saying it's a part of it. Suffering is a part of it. And these guys were suffering. Listen, the the book of Hebrews was written to a very small group of Jewish believers that had once had been a fairly significant number of Jewish believers, but they were being persecuted by their Jewish brothers. You can't follow Jesus and have anything to do with us, and we'll try to do to you what we did to Jesus, which is crucify him. And the Romans were coming at them. They were getting it from every angle. These guys were utterly alone, and the writer says, quit your whining. You haven't resisted the blood yet, shedding the blood yet, right? We should not consider suffering strange, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Now, look, when your parents disciplined you when you were growing up, it came in all forms. Sometimes, you know, back in the day, it was pow. Still is, I imagine, in some homes. Don't tell anybody, though. You'll be arrested. Um, You'd get it. You know, you'd get when you did something wrong, you would be disciplined. But there was also the discipline of you must do your chores. Do this. Do that. No, you can't do that. You must do. And. There was all kinds of discipline that our parents were trying to establish and instill in our lives so that when we left home, we would be self-disciplined. The discipline mentioned here surely includes corrective discipline, but it also includes all kinds of suffering. Now, perhaps you're not excited about thinking of cancer. Or broken relationships is discipline, but they are. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have done something wrong. I mean, all suffering is a form of discipline, which is never administered in wrath. Have you ever administered discipline to your children in wrath or anger? Yeah, most likely you have. Some of you say, no, not me. Well, I'm afraid I I failed on that, you know, to never do it in anger. I did discipline in anger. The Father, the Heavenly Father, not always, just occasionally. Uh, The Father never disciplines us in wrath. You know why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Lord forsook Jesus, and he disciplined him in wrath. And now we benefit when we believe that Jesus died in our place. We are made children of God, and we are never disciplined in wrath. Discipline is, in fact, a sign of God's love for you as his child. How opposite is that from the prosperity gospel? Which implies the closer you are to God, the better life is. Not only is that not true, if you never suffer, what does verse 7 say? It could be a concern. Verse 8. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, 
Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make straight paths for your feet so that it may, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Isn't the suffering enough? Do you want it to be put out of joint or be healed? Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So here in verse 11 um, is another contradiction about suffering often found when the pendulum swings all the way from this prosperity gospel to, hey, bring it on, I want some suffering. Not me. Not me. I, I don't want to suffer. No suffering seems pleasant. Don't be a stoic. Um, sooner or later, you'll get more than you can handle. See, that's the only suffering that really does the work for us, is more than we can handle, more than we can manage, more than we can manipulate. It will purify the church. Yes, it will. But whether individually or collectively, suffering is not pleasant for the moment. It serves, though, to make us more like Jesus, who was both a peacemaker and was holy. We're called to, to, to strive for peace, to work for peace in the body. And to strive and pursue holiness, especially in suffering. Unfortunately, like Job, we can find ourselves with too many questions and too few answers for our liking. And we find ourselves slipping into bitterness. But God warns against it. Look at verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defile, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit a blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, let me just explain quickly what He's saying right here at the end, even though Esau wanted to repent, he couldn't. He's ta- the writer is talking about Esau could not get that birthright back. He had just completely thrown it away, and there was no way he could get it back. Anytime anyone repents, he is forgiven. She is forgiven by the Lord. Always, when we repent, God forgives us. So how does one fail to obtain the grace of God that he speaks of in verse 15? I mean, isn't grace uh, a, a gift in which God freely gives his love to us? It's impossible for us to achieve or to obtain. Absolutely, the writer here is encouraging us to stay in the places where God's grace flows. You know how it was. Many of you were just walking down the road and God reached down and picked you up and put you on this path going in the absolute opposite direction. Sometimes that happens by being born into family. Some of you were taken 
in spite of your family, and I don't mean that ugly at all. I just mean that in spite of the direction of your family heading away from God, he turned you around he, he, in his mercy and in his grace, and we're on this path. But you know what? As we are on this path, there are places where God's grace is poured down. And we put ourselves in those places when we're in a, a setting like this in which we're hearing the word preached and we're fellowshipping with one another and in home groups as well where we connect with other believers. When we confess sin that comes into our lives, when we fail to confess sin, the grace is stymied. The flow is not good. You know what it's like it, when the faucet starts not flowing as well as it used to and then it and and then it just crawls down to nothing if you if you had water from a spring like we did in the mountains you would know that what that's like and the and the water just gets to a trickle that's what happens when we live with unconfessed sin in our lives you're going to explore this in more detail in home group this week there's some interesting connections in in these three verses i mean we understand bitterness as a response to suffering when we fail to trust god but what does bitterness have to do with sexual immorality and the selling of birthrights. Well, bitterness, for starters, indicates a significant lack of trust in a sovereign God. When we are bitter, it indicates about our circumstances, about the way people have treated us, about this or that, whatever. We indicate a lack of trust in a sovereign God. You know what is best for your life, and this is not it. So instead of growing spiritually, we struggle with bitterness. And since we grow in the same way that we're saved, by faith, we turn away from God when we turn away from his word because we just can't handle it right now. Or we try to read it and it's just words on a page because God is silent and we're susceptible to fleshly temptations. So first of all was Esau... Immoral, sexually immoral. Old Testament doesn't say anything about that. Well, there are two possibilities here. Either one, the New Testament has given us more information. Some of the early Jewish traditions had Esau as being a sexually immoral person. So maybe that's indeed the case. Probably is. But also, it could be that the writer is saying here that Esau's... um, Desire for instant gratification rather than receiving his God-given privilege and responsibility of the firstborn, the birthright, uh, was spiritual adultery or idolatry. You know, it's very interesting, isn't it? When we, when we suffer, we, we, we feel like we're losing control. We've, we've got our lives all set up and, and, and we've planned as well we should plan for things to go a particular way. And we follow the principles of Scripture which by and large make for a better life. And suffering comes and everything is out of whack. You can't keep your schedule at work. You're, you can't maintain the same type of schedule you used to with relationships. You have to cut some of those off. And you feel like you're losing control. And, and, and it's 
crazy that rational minds can do this, but we look for things that give us control sometimes when our lives feel out of control. Like pornography or romance novels, pornography for men, romance romance novels for women, undisciplined spending, undisciplined eating, because it's like, this is something I can control in my life. And of course, you're just asking yourself to be a slave. Here are my hands. Here are my feet. Here's my back. Beat me to a pulp. I'm a slave to this. Bitterness can lead to sins that we think will give us a measure of control in our lives. And bitterness, especially the self-justifying kind, can quickly become an idol. But as Michael Horton says, idols always overpromise and always under-deliver. I begin to think that going over the events in my mind and affirming the rightness of of my cause will confirm, not only for me, but also in the minds of others, the rightness of my cause, the unfairness of my illness, the mistreatment by others, the dastardly deeds of my friend turned opponent. But all I end up with is misery, addicted to the poison that is slowly killing me and damaging everybody around me. Some of you are hanging on to things that happened in your childhood. Some of you are hanging on to things that happened in your early adult life. And not only can you not move past it, you don't want to move past it. Drink your poison. Robert Louis Stevenson, who wrote Treasure Island in the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde said, sooner or later, everyone sits down to a banquet of consequences. Thank God for his forgiveness. Thank God for the example of Jesus to leave our suffering in the hands of the one who judges justly, whether our suffering is caused by ourselves, by others, or by the inevitable misfortunes that come from living in a fallen and broken world. Thank God for the Holy Spirit who will not let us alone in our sin. Who will not let us live any way that we want to live. And who brings conviction and gives repentance even when we want to stew in our own self-pity and bitterness. Thank God for the Father's loving plan that places us wherever and with whomever he deems best. I want to uh, close this morning by sharing a few excerpts from a book written by 16th, 17th century priest named Francois de Fenelon. The book that bears his name, this particular book, is called The Seeking Heart. It's a compilation of letters, and you might want to write it down because when I read from it in a little bit, you're going to say, oh, yeah, I think I, I could use that. It's a compilation of letters that he wrote to people that he was mentoring. The great value of this book is that he says things that you really need to hear in a book from someone who lived 400 years ago. You don't want to hear this from your best friend. You really don't want to hear this from your spouse, you know, or your parents. 
You want to hear this from somebody who lived a long time ago. So let's give Fenelon the right to apply biblical principles to our suffering. As long as you live by your old nature, you will be open to all the injustices of men. Your temper will get you into fights. Your passions will clash with your neighbors. Your desires will be like tender spots open to your enemy's arrows. Everything will be against you, attacking you from all sides. If you live at the mercy of a crowd of greedy and hungry desires, then you will never find peace. You will never be satisfied because everything will bother you. You will be like an invalid who has been bedridden for many years. Anywhere you were touched, you will feel pain. Your self-love is terribly touchy. No matter how slightly it is insulted, it screams, Murderer! Don't you love this stuff? I mean, let's not share this with one another again. Let's take it from Fenelon. Add to this all the insensitivity of others. They're disgusted at your weakness and they're disgusted at theirs. And now you have the children of Adam forever tormenting each other. The only hope is to come out of yourself. Lose all your self-interest. Only then can you enjoy the true peace reserved for men of goodwill. Such people have no other will but God's. If you come to such a place, then what can harm you? You will no longer be attacked through your hopes or fears. You may be worried, inconvenienced, or distressed. But you can rest in him no matter what you're suffering. You can rest in him. Love the hand that disciplines you. Find peace in all things, even in going to the cross. Be happy with what you have. Wish for nothing else. Surrender to God and find true peace. I am awed by what suffering can produce. You and I are nothing without the cross. I agonize and cry when the cross is working within me. But when it is over, I look back in admiration for what God has accomplished. Of course, I am then ashamed that I bore it so poorly. I have learned so much from my foolish reactions. Have you? You yourself must endure the painful process of change. There is much more at work here than your instant maturity. God wants to build a relationship with you that is based on faith and trust, not on glamorous miracles. That's the whole message of Job. I've got a plan, Job. Do you have a problem with that? Trust me. What is it that right now you want eliminated from your life? If God would do this, I would give him the glory. God wants to build a relationship with you that is based on faith and trust and not on glamorous miracles. I think that's the whole message of the entire Bible at one level. 
Show us a sign and we'll believe you have the sign. The sign of Jonah will be given to you. Three days, I'll rise again. Does God do miracles? Absolutely. Do I pray for him? You bet I do. Have I seen him do things that I've prayed for? Not because of my prayer, but just because of his. Yes, and I, I thank God for it. He shows us his love every day in little ways. If you'll pray for the little things, he'll answer them. And you'll sense his presence and his care and his love. And he's listening to you. But sometimes the big things won't go away because his design in making you, shaping you, molding you into the image of his son has to be this way. cross didn't make sense, did it? It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. You didn't even mention the cross in polite society in the first century. Somebody say the cross and everybody go quiet. And they're like, crucifixion. Did you see the crucifixion the other day? Um, hey, boy, this strange weather we're having, isn't it? I mean, it's just everything. The cross made no sense at all. And yet, on this side of Pentecost, on this side of Scripture, it makes perfect sense to us. God was painting a picture with Job, and Job was just fighting against it. What's going on here? As Christopher Ash said, he's not every man. He's not even every believer. Job's suffering was extreme. What are you suffering? No worse than Job, I can promise you that. No worse than Job. But he was pointing to one whose body would be beaten, whose blood would be spilled in our place. On the first Sunday of every month, we come to this table and we worship as fellow believers. We worship the one who died for us. I'm going to ask the elders and the deacons and the worship team to come forward, please, if you would, as we prepare our hearts for communion. Let me just say, if you are here today and you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we invite you to share this table with us. And in case this is your first time, After the servers are served, we'll ask you to come forward and there will be ushers helping you. You'll go to a station that is in front of your section. So go to the station in front of your section. If you come from over here, you'll go that way. Come here, you'll go this way. Come down these two slanted aisles. Go back the outside aisles and up the middle. You can partake in the front or you can... Take it to your seat and partake. I want to read the words of this. And by the way, if if you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, then let me just say this meal is for believers. You can either stay where you are. You can come forward and just not receive when you go by. I would far rather you be honest Scripture indicates that this is a serious thing that we do this morning. 
Believers, confess your sins. Unbelievers, place your faith in Jesus Christ. And come and by partaking of this meal say, I believe that Jesus died for me and my only hope of heaven is in him. I repent of my sins. I give myself over to him entirely. Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after, cup, after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table causes us to look past to what Jesus did for us. It causes us to be in the moment where we find spiritual nourishment at this table together. And it causes us to look to the future when we we affirm that Jesus Christ is coming again. Father, we recognize our sin, and particularly the sin of not trusting you. As we have thought about today, when life is hard, We ask that you would forgive us, Lord, and we know that we can receive that forgiveness in Jesus because of Jesus and because of this very thing that we remember today. We pray that you would nourish us at your table. We thank you for the body that was given up on our behalf and the blood that was spilled. And as we receive the bread and the fruit of the vine, we say thank you. We celebrate what you have done for us. We proclaim the gospel in Jesus' name. Amen.